Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do praise you just for this new child, Father Silone. And uh, we just pray that you would just work a mighty work in her life, Father. She wants the mic already. <laughs> and that, Father, your Holy Spirit would just continue to take her life and make her to be the uh, child that would just be uh, precious in your sight. That you would use her, Father, that you would use her hands, her feet, her life, everything for your kingdom, Father. We pray that we as a church would just be taking this life, Father, and treating it as precious in your sight. And that we, Father, would just um, have this child to be dedicated towards you. We thank you, Father. You're the giver of life. And we want to honor that life, Father, by having it to be honorable in your sight. We thank you for this child. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Should have named her Alethea. <laughs> no. She's going for that mic. We love Alethea. I've never had a baby go for the mic so much. Like, she's got, she's got a purpose. She's got a ministry. That's awesome. It's awesome to see that each life is valuable and cared for. And we always want to take time. As We had a couple uh, baby showers yesterday. And, oh, <laughs> she's going to go up. <laughs> Let me straighten up. Oh, no. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's right. <sighs> All right, we're digging ourselves deep here in our hole. Uh, let's get into Luke chapter 3 and take it from there. Let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you've given us today. We thank you that you've given us life, Father. We thank you that uh, we can celebrate, Father, the good things that you've given us. You are an awesome, awesome God, Father, and we pray for your Holy Spirit. Like never before, Father, would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see your words, Father, that we would see the things that are portrayed and brought out here, Father, and that we'd have a clear image, Father, of you, and we'd have a clear idea of where we are with you. Father, we need you more today than ever before. These are dark days, Father. It is a perverse and wicked generation that we are in today. I pray, Father, that we would hold on to you uh, tighter, closer than ever before. We thank you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have been going through Luke, and as we're going through Luke, you kind of get a little bit of the Christmas story that uh, we've been going through. And really, it's, it's amazing when you look at it. There's a lot of things that are happening. Luke is, is bringing us to a place to understand who Jesus is. And he's at a place where he's been showing us the promises of God. Uh, and I like this. We started off the book by saying that the world was, was kind of a cold, devoid, uh, uh, devoid of the spirit place. It was a miserable place. It was a, a, a place where you had a priest that should know who God is in the temple of God be shocked by an angel showing up. This guy, Zacharias. Uh, and that's a, that's a clear picture to us of, of the condition of man. We're cold, we're miserable. God shows up and we just freak out. It can't be. How can these things happen? We have a tendency to want to keep the blinders on. 
But God gives His promises to us. And we saw that there was a process to His promise on how He gives it to us. How there's a gestation period of it, and then there's the glory of it. And now we're starting to get into the parts of the book where things are starting to happen. Something's going on. It's not just cold and empty and just waiting on a promise. You're starting to see the fulfillment of these things. But there was a period of time. Chapter 3, verse 1, it gives us, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Atura, in the region of Trachidonis, and Lysias, uh, tetrarch of Albaline, which uh, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Luke is giving us a timetable, if he would. He's saying there's a new Caesar. It's no longer Caesar Augustus who was around when Jesus was, a bo was born. Now there's a new Caesar, a new king of the land, a guy named Tiberius. There's now a guy named Pontius Pilate who's a governor of the area that Jesus was in. So things have changed from the last chapter. And then if you would, you're seeing this guy Herod. And this is going to be Herod Jr., if you would. Herod the Great, father, the guy that was the madman that wanted to kill all the babies of Bethlehem because he was jealous of, of, of another king. You're seeing his son now takes over. He's a tetrarch. It means that he's a, a quarter of the empire is divided. Father was such a, a big kingdom, and now it tells you it's him and his brother Philip and this other guy, um, uh, Lysanias, and there's another guy in there. that were four of them that took over the father's position. And they're also telling you that there's a change of guard on the Jewish side. This says, while well, Annas, Annas was a high priest for a while. He was in the midst of stepping down during these years. And his son-in-law, uh, Caiaphas, were now taking over. So it pinpoints a timetable for us, but it's telling you that Basically, things have advanced. Things have now changed. Where we last let off, we saw, you know, we were looking at the baby Jesus. We were looking at Jesus. Then he was 12 years old. And now it's a jump where we're seeing that he's about 30 years of age. And so you're seeing now that we saw two children that were to be born. One was John the Baptist, we said, through the father of Zachariah, sorry, and Elizabeth. And the other one was Jesus the one that was born through Mary and Joseph. Both of them were impressive births. Both of them came from the angel Gabriel announcing that wonderful things were going to start to happen. And now we're seeing 30 years later as these children are now old, they're now men and they're being recognized by society. You're seeing that the word of God in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So... I'm sure it was kind of interesting that when John was born, we said that everyone looked at him and said something special about this child. This kid set aside. His dad couldn't speak for the whole time that his mother was pregnant. And so it was a, a supernatural thing. They call him John and the wonderful things were going on. But they take the kid and throw him in the desert. Something special about the kid. But he wanders off into the desert and he's gone. So all of a sudden, tap, 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 there, there's a knock on John's heart and it says, now's the time. You need to go back in, go back into the people and speak your message. We knew that uh, John was a wild man, if you would, that he had uh, camel's hair, which was the garb of the prophet, that he ate locusts dipped in honey. Doesn't sound like a very good diet to me. 
And he speaked a, a very in-your-face, confrontational message. And it says he went into all the region uh, around the Jordan, back around uh, some types of the population around the city. And he's preaching, it says, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And so he's telling you that his message, and as we know, John, he's an in-your-face kind of guy. He's speaking about a baptism, going out to the lake and getting dunked, for the purpose of repentance. So he's this last of the Old Testament prophets. He's out there screaming his head off like a wild man out there. You'd think the guy was half insane if you saw him today. And he'd be this guy just screaming at you, saying, repent, repent. But he's fulfilling the prophecy. He's saying, he says, uh, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And we went through that not too long ago, a couple years ago. Saying, he's saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what John's message is, is a message of preparation. He wants to make God, the Lord, accessible to people. So as in-your-face and confrontational as he is, the overall objective is to turn around and to make God accessible. You need to get to God. And in order to get to God, there has to be a message of repentance. And he's a man crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And he says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So, he's turning around and he's saying, there is a way to get to God. And in order to get to God, he's going to be telling us it's going to be coming through repentance. It's going to be turning around and saying, you've got to repent in order to make your access to God smooth. I like that. So he's saying you've got to take the high, high places and lower them. You take the low places and you fill it in. You think of a road going down, and, and in order to, to kind of straighten out the road and fill in the potholes and make it so that it's, it's a nice, smooth ride. And unfortunately for a lot of us in life, we're going on the ride of life. We're going down the road, if you would. And we do. We cry out and we say, Lord, I want a smoother path. Lord, my path that I am on is a rough ride. And part of us need to hear that when we're complaining about the bumps in the road, you've got to be able to say, well, then what can I do to smooth it out? And John the Baptist is telling us clearly it's repentance. It means to change your ways. It means to move aside. It's preparation, and you have to have that repentance. We'll get into that in a little bit. But notice how he comes across. John wasn't very polite. And then he said to the multitudes, so there wasn't just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the multitudes consisted of the crowd of everybody. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. So you go, hey, he's preaching repentance. People are showing up and they're saying, hey, I'd like to get baptized. He's got a crowd there that is probably favorable that are walking out from Jerusalem to hear him. Doesn't sound like he should be too offended by them, does it? And he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized him, You brood of vipers! You're a den of rats! 
He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You can almost hear the disgust in his voice. Oh, gee, you get to come out here, and now you're coming out here. You're going to avoid it, but you really deserve it. And then he says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, don't even start with, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And that now, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you can hear his tone. He's not a nice guy. It's a slap in your face message. It's an insult to those that are making an effort to come. And he is trying to get under their skin to make a point. He's calling them all, you're all a bunch of snakes in the grass. You're all a bunch of rats. And he's even disgusted that they would even respond to his message because he was kind of hoping maybe they wouldn't respond and then judgment would come upon him. Thanks, John. That's not very nice. And I like this. And he says, don't even begin to say to ourselves. So the idea is a lot of people at the time, they said, we're Jews. We're God's chosen people. God's going to do a wonderful work in Israel. We know that God loves us and cares for us. And they could be saying to themselves, I'm a child of God. I was born Jewish. I have an inheritance. I know that I'm something special to God. And John, John the Baptist just walks right up and says, don't even start with that. God is disgusted with you. God is upset with you. God is not happy with you. This is a miserable condition that you are in. And unfortunately, sometimes we do need to hear that message. Because you know what? You and I, we can delude ourselves, water down ourselves to a place that we really think that just everything's fine. We do want everything to be so easy in Christianity. And somehow or another, this message of repentance gets lost in a popular, trendy Christianity. The power of God is there for you, brother, just to bless you and to bless you and to bless you. And all we can focus on sometimes is just all the blessings of the Lord that are to be poured out upon the believer. And you know what, Christian? I'm telling you, yes, they are. In the fullness of the power of God. But it also comes along with that statement that we as a believer, to enter into the kingdom of God, to be able to be prepared to receive God, is that nasty word repentance. And repentance means that you have to be willing to go through a process of confession. That's what the beginning of repentance would be, that in your mouth and in your words you would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, yes, but even more importantly, that you're a sinner. And I find that message is lost in modern Christianity, that there has to come a time that we would turn around and say, Lord, I've failed. Lord, I am weak. Lord, I am lost without you. That message has got to be in the formula. Then there has to be a repentance, and that repentance would then mean to be a turning away, forgetting, you know, losing, rejecting the ways of the past, our B.C. days. There should be things in our life where we used to smoke and drink and party and play around and do all the things that we wanted to do in the world. That's the way the world operates. And we have to turn around and say, Lord, those are no longer my issues. Those are no longer the things that I'm doing in my life. 
and I need to sit down there and start to pursue. I'm changing direction. And not only is it just looking, changing, and facing the right direction, but then thirdly, it's doing. Jesus says, do the deeds of repentance. John is saying, you have to bear forth good fruit. And in our lives, we have to understand that as true repentance, as we can turn around and confess, as we can turn and face the Lord and start to walk in the direction of God as a changed person, your Christianity, listen to this, your Christianity gets real fuzzy. It gets real weak and you get to lose a lot of your direction as a believer if you really don't have repentance. Unfortunately, a lot of people, they lack the power of God because they have never fully let go of the world. And for you and I, it's really hard. It's a day-to-day -day struggle to really just to let go of our past, let go of the way that we were as a way of thinking. There's a part of us that wants to have an easy Christianity. I just want it all to come to me. I just want it all to happen easy. I just want, I'm just want to be a Christian because I want the easy road in life. We want it to almost be a, a greasy Christianity. We want it so we can just slide around and slop all over the place. And we can say, I just want to take it greasy, Pastor. I want that easy, greasy grace. I just want you to, to, to just slop that stuff on me. I got, a, I got a guilty conscience, Pastor. I'm going to come to church. I want you to put a little Band-Aid on my wound and make me feel good and just give me something simple and I can walk out the door. People do it all the time. But it's not the process that God is outlining for us. And he is saying clearly, if you want to prepare, the preparation for God to work in your life has to be the foundation of repentance. For you to be able to turn around, get down on your knees and to say, Lord, I've got a problem. I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I'm an adulterer. I've done this. I've done that. I've done these things. And there's something, people, about the confession of your mouth, the power of the tongue, that when the words leave your lips, something starts to listen to this, be broken in your life. Hey, I've been there, okay? I, I started going to Calvary Chapel and I started listening to the pastor. I said, oh, I really like the church. I really appreciate that they didn't pass the plate. I really appreciate the plate that, that they didn't hustle me. I like, and I started to be drawn to church when I started going to the big Calvary Chapel in California. And something about me said, I really, really like this. This isn't offensive to me. And I can really start to be understanding. And I can remember going home and I'd pray and say, Lord, I need you. And you know what? I can, I can remember the Lord even really speaking to me, answering me, working in my life. But there was a time when I went out to be baptized and all of a sudden, when I was to be baptized out in the ocean, they came up and they said, if you want to be baptized, there was, you know, three or four hundred people getting baptized. There was five or six different people that are out there doing the dunking. And, and I said, well, I want to go out there. And they said, you have to give a, you know, profession of your faith. And it was the first time I really had to vocalize, verbalize, speak with my mouth. And I said, Jesus is my Lord. And it really hit me like a ton of bricks to say, you really have never said that before. You've prayed it, you've felt it, but when it leaves your lips and you go, Ugh, 
I've taken a good hard look at my life and I've failed miserably. And now that it's left my lips out of a sense of confession, there is a power in your life that is broken. Now, I don't know whether or not you go to heaven without having to sit down there and, 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 you know, I don't know whether or not I was born again at that moment. And I could argue and says I really thought I had a relationship with the Lord. But I only want to tell you one thing. It made the road of life so much smoother. It made things painfully obvious and clear. And I don't know what it was. If it's something in your mind, something in your heart, something in your life, where you turn around and says, well, you know, I, I, kinda, I, I kind of agree with Christianity. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of, you know, I, I, I think Jesus is my Lord. Yeah, I kind of cry out to the Lord and says, Lord, help me with my sick puppy, you know. And I feel like the Lord speaks to me. But there's something that breaks through the barriers in the power of true repentance, the power of confession, the power of changing my life, and then to turn around and to say, from this day forward, I'm born again. And when you can verbalize that and tell somebody who says, I'm a born again Christian, I don't know where you are, but if you've never had those words leave your lips, the first time that happens, it scares you to death. And you're almost like, did I just say that? Let me take that back. That, that was an intense statement. I'm a born-again Christian. Oh, well, I'm not one of them. And then you go, yes, I am. And then you start to back your life up and say, a Christian should not be doing X, Y, Z. The Christian should not be out here doing this. I need to stop doing these things. And John the Baptist is screaming. He's in your face. He's vulgar for a reason. And he wants to get it across, the dullness, listen to this, the dullness that penetrates into our lives when we have a tendency to just glaze over our real issues. And if God is saying, if you want to see the power of the Messiah in your life, you have to be able to point blank deal with the issues in your life. And if you're not willing to deal with issues, to be honest and to confess the truth, you can go to heaven. I, I don't know. Let God judge your heart. But it's always a game of dodging and hiding and ducking and never really being able to sit down and to deal with the truth. And I, I can only tell you, as there's times that I have had to repent, admit that I was wrong, that out of that came such freedom, such liberty, and, and, and a feeling of saying, look, it's dealt with. It's on the table. I can be now free. The, the, the Bible speaks very strongly. Jesus deals a lot with his ministry in his teachings on dealing with people that are false brothers. The parables are packed with teachings about false Christians. He turns around and you can just see him. He's turning around and he says, hey, you know, we got the, the parable of the, the fisherman. He goes out and he throws the, the dragnet into the sea and he drags in all the fish. There's lots of fish. But then the angels turn around and says, this is a good fish and this is a bad fish. What constitutes a good fish? What constitutes a bad fish? We got the parable of the wheat and the tares. You know, there's a lot of things out there that all look real good. The tares are a weed. It looks like wheat, but it doesn't bear any fruit. And, and there's times that we can be deceived about the wheat and the tares. There's the parable about the seeds. You go out and scatter all the seeds. Some of them don't grow. Some of them grow, but they don't bear fruit, and they are cut down and thrown into the fire. 
You can turn around and see, hey, the parable of the virgins. And, and he says, there's 10 virgins out there. Nice, you know, good looking women that have kept themselves chaste, but five of them fall asleep. They're false. They don't make it. They don't enter into the door. The bridegroom comes, brings in the five virgins. There's five other virgins out there crying. They're saying, hey, what happened? Let us in. They're banging on the door. And he goes, eh, you blew it. You missed it. You fell asleep at the wheel. You see, Jesus, he talks about the two sons. One son, he, they, they says, the, the, the father says, go out to the field and work. And, and the one says, okay, dad. He turns around and just walks away and tells his dad, I don't do that. Lip service, but it's not a true repentance. The other one can turn around and says, I'm not doing that, dad. But after that, he regretted it, and he had a sorrow in his heart, and he went out and did it. But Jesus is trying to always weed out, separate, and say, there's such a, a, a close proximity between a true believer and a false believer. And I want to look at that, and one of the things I can say, and well, I'll let the Lord be the judge, and I'll let the angels figure it out, and the dragnet at the end of the times on who's who and what's what. But I know in my heart that there's such freedom when I can confess and say, I've made a fool out of myself. I need Jesus in my life. And there's such power in our lives as we can have true repentance. And what John is doing, he's saying, look, I'm not here to be polite. I'm not here to win friends over. I'm here to tell you the truth. And the truth is going to hurt. The truth is going to be where you have to deal with an issue. And you need to get through this glazed over fake feeling in your life that everything's fine until you want to start to deal with the meat of the issue. And he's in your face. He is saying, you're brood of vipers who warned you to come. Don't you even begin to think that you're okay with God. Don't you even begin to think because of your birthright it's okay. No way are you okay. And that process has to be with inside of a believer. I'd like to be able to sit down and say, well, it's just all a nice, you know, easy, greasy grace. Let's just sit down and slide through the kingdom of God. Wouldn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Wouldn't want to step on anybody's toes. We want to be popular. And John is like, I don't care about popularity. I care about the power of God. And you have to be able to make that application. And notice what they do. So they go, okay, John, you're in our face. And the people, they turn around and they respond to him. And they go, all right. So the people, verse 10, asked him and they said, well, what do you want us to do? You show me how this works in actual life. Give me an application. Give me an example. What do you mean repentance? And he's got to give them some. He answered and he said to them, real simple. He who has two tunics, well, we all got two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And to uh, he who has food, let him do likewise. So, hey, you need to sit down and take what you got. And I've given away all my tunics now. <laughs> so I'm righteous now. It's a little deeper than that. It's turning around and saying, you take what you have and you give. You've got to give things away. That's a slap in the face to our flesh that wants to hoard, that wants to keep, that wants to take. And to be a giver, to be a giver instead of a taker is the sign of saying that's what I need to do in my life. I need to be generous. I need to take what I have and give it away because I'm trusting in the Lord now. So he says, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collector and everyone knows how tax collectors are loved now, they're still the same uh, 
slime then as they are now. They're all stealing from you. That government, the tax collectors, they also came to be baptized. And they're coming out there, they're asking to be baptized. And said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, hey, why don't you quit being a thief? Collect no more than what is appointed for you. So instead of bumping up the charges, instead of just taking advantage of people, why don't you just do what you're supposed to do? There is a, a, an allotment, an appointment for you, and you have to live within the things that God has given you. And you and I, we love to say that we've got the upper hand. We want to better our position in life and say, I know what I've been given, but I want to be better. And it's so hard to say, I'm not here to better myself. I'm going to take what the Lord has given me. And he says, likewise, the soldiers, they came up to him. And they're saying, well, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone, you big bully. Quit pushing and shoving people around to take things. Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So he's saying in a nutshell, stop your lying, cheating, stealing. And you know what he says? God's put you in a certain position, at least here with a tax collector and a soldier. And I have to kind of stand up here and be a little defensive of the things that have happened in my life, spending four years in the Marine Corps. And I kind of feel like the Lord actually used my time in the Marine Corps to teach me many things. And notice what he's saying. He did not say, run away from being a soldier. He's saying, be a soldier, but be an honest soldier. And sometimes there's an enforcement. You could even look at this as a police officer and say, you know what, we have an obligation in our life sometimes to be a police officer. And we, don't, we all like a police officer. When our house is broken into, when someone steals something from us, we look for that police officer and we rejoice for that. But we all hate a police officer if he pulls us over when we did nothing wrong, if he drags us across the street and beats us up, and then he throws us in jail just to extract money out of us. You can go to Mexico if you like. You can get pulled over for doing nothing down in Mexico. And they'll sit down there and call my mother up and says, if you want your boy home, it's a $5,000 fine. Well, you know, that's extortion. That's, that's, that's not the way we want to see things. And, and what he's saying is, is there's a proper role and function for really anything in life. A police officer, a soldier. But you know what? We want to capitalize on our position and we want to then use that and that's what the soldiers would do back then you hear the thing if a soldier comes and there was a law that says he could come and say you pick up my bags and carry them for a mile and Jesus says if someone asks you to go one mile you go two and and he's saying the 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 thing was a soldier could come up and just say you you're you're in you 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 you're in trouble you you're in trouble you you're arrested and that's a scary concept to think of the law and then it says, you're arrested and if you want to get out of it, it's an extra $1,000 in my pocket. And the soldier, I guess, wasn't paid very much. He had to extort the money from the people. And he's saying, hey, if you're going to be a soldier, if you want to go fight for justice, that's one thing. But you know what? Don't sit down there and rip people off. That, that wickedness in the heart. And you could almost see it if, if you could within a, a, a dishonest cop, a dishonest soldier. And, and, and there is an attraction to say, well, I'm the man in authority. I have every right to take extra money. That's kind of the way it works, you know. I go into the city, my government doesn't really pay me too much. Nobody can live on the government paycheck. So it's almost like they know, wink, wink, that you're supposed to go in and take some, people, some people's money. And, and, and in so many 
societies, cultures, businesses today, there is a, hey, we all steal, rob, and cheat. Wink, wink. And that's just the way it's done. You have to do that to survive nowadays. You, you got to get away with a little bit of something because everybody does it. See, that's the, the glaze that, cl that cr crosses over our eyes. That's where we want the easy, greasy grace. That's where we want to sit down and say, oh, Lord, just give it to me. And I really don't want to think about it. I know the law says I shouldn't do this. I know this is cheating. I know I'm lying, but it's a white lie. And you know what? It, you know, what's done between consenting adults doesn't hurt anybody else. So my sins are not a crime that hurts anyone else. Well, you know, I make a little bit of cash, but don't we all? <laughs> and that thinking, that glaze that comes over your head, that mind, is the very thing that thwarts the Holy Spirit from working in your life. When you can sit down there and be pierced to the heart and say, oh, wait a second, I, I, I've looked at my life. I, I lie. I cheat. I steal. I've done so many things wrong. I thought I was a good person, but you know what? If I were to take a look of myself outside of myself and look at myself, I'd say, that guy's messed up. And when you start to take a good hard look at yourself and say, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Maybe there's something wrong with my life. At that point, you're beginning to start to see the work of God in your life. When you can turn around and say, Lord, it's not the easy, greasy grace. It's not this glazed over thing in my eyes. The Holy Spirit sometimes can be offensive to you to wake you up because you have been in denial. And God wants to get past that veil, past that work of your heart, and to be able to say, I want the genuine thing. And so he's just saying, he says, do what is right, give. Do what is appointed, and be content with what you have. And so if you would, the people were out there being baptized, and it says, verse 15, he says, now as the people were in expectation, you can almost feel it saying, okay, we're going to do this. And all reasoned in their hearts about John, and now they're saying, wow, you spoke the truth to me, brother. You've got to be the Messiah. And, and they were inquiring whether he was the Christ or not. So the people were in expectation. They're saying, well, we knew that, you know, God promised us a Messiah. This guy's really in my face. And this guy knows me because, hey, we're all cheaters. And all they have to do is call you a cheater. And you go, wow, you really know me. Well, now I know the hearts of men and I know my heart and uh, you know it doesn't take a rocket science and well you must be a prophet and, and, and they're going no John John answered saying I I'm not the guy John answered saying to all I baptized you with water so you go out to the lake and and I'm dunking you in the lake that's what the word baptism means to immerse in to to be drenched in he says I indeed baptized you with water but it's not just a matter of that. He says, but one uh, mightier than I is coming. He says, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. That's a fancy way of saying back then, I shouldn't even tie this guy's shoes. There's a guy that's so much better than me and so good and so awesome. When you see Jesus, you're going to understand it. And he, he, this, this other guy, which John wasn't exactly sure who it was to be until it was to be revealed, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there is a baptism of repentance that takes you and dunks you into the water, and you can turn around and confess your sins, and all that is well and good. 
And Dr. Phil would agree that you have to do that. You gotta, you gotta sit down and confess and be honest with yourself. That's just psychology 101. That's no big trick. But Jesus is coming along and he's going to give you something. He's going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. Christianity isn't just beating you over the head to get you to confess. It's the opportunity that if you can confess your sins, you were then prepared to receive a blessing. The power of the Holy Spirit. And I like this. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I like that term fire. Fire. You're going to dunk me in the fire? What's that all about? I want the power. You can just feel that idea. And, and it's kind of a New Testament concept. John's throwing this out there. And, I, and, and it's amazing how the Holy Spirit, when it does come upon you, you feel that burning sensation. You can feel like, wow, I'm lit up, man. There's something going through me. There's power of God's changing me. Wow. But this idea is just thrown out there. There's going to come one that's going, to, that's going to wake you up, that's going to sit down and get underneath your skin, that's going to do something so powerful and so wonderful. And John's saying, I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to preach my message. I'm a you know, uh, single drum beating and beating and beating over and over again to say, repent, repent, repent. But this is just the preparation for the good things that can happen. And yet he says, if you would, his, speaking of the Messiah to come, and we know that to be Jesus. He's going to be baptized here in a minute. But he says, he's still speaking. He says, his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we know the story that uh, back then if you had your, you would gather the wheat uh, uh, you know, up on a hill was what you would do. And there were certain days that you could take the wheat and the wheat was you know, there. with It had the granules inside of it that was good to eat. And then that was all surrounded by the chaff, the husk of that little piece of wheat. And you didn't want to put that into your bread. So you wanted to separate you know, the wheat from the chaff, the, the husk that was around the wheat. And as what they would do is they would go up to a hill and they would wait for just the right breeze. It would be a light breeze that would come across. And you'd take the wheat and the chaff and you'd take a, a big pitchfork or a fork and you'd throw the wheat up in the air. And then the wind would come along and blow the chaff away. And then the true wheat would come and settle down. And so it was a, a, a way of separation, allowing the wind to blow through to separate something real from something false. And Jesus is in the business of separation. He wants to throw us up in the air sometimes, let the wind blow through us and remove from us the excess things of God that don't belong there. That's not hearty for a meal. That's not of substance for the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, his winnowing fan is in his hair and he will thoroughly cleanse out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. So if you can remember, you, you teach the saints and you preach to the sinners. And John the Baptist was a preacher. And he's saying, you, you're dirty, miserable, good for nothing, trash. You know, you need to repent, repent, repent. And he's just this old, he's preaching. He ain't teaching. He's not even caring. He's just ripping people up and down, up and down. It has a purpose. It has a place. And so it says, with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. 
And he kind of oversteps his boundaries. He says, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him. Rebuked is a Christian term to say he gave him the riot act, I guess. Uh, ripping him up and down. And uh, uh, he says, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So inside the politics of Rome, if you would, not Jewish politics, but the politics of Rome, John the Baptist speaks up and starts to rip apart the politics of the day and saying, this guy up here, Herod's been messing around with Herodias, and uh, I'm sorry, Philip, uh, his brother Philip's wife. So Herod Jr., his, he's messing around with his brother's wife. They turn around and go through this whole big mess, and John has the audacity to turn and speak about <gasps> politics from the pulpit. He obviously didn't believe in the separation of synagogue and state. <laughs> and so he, he doesn't relent one bit. He doesn't hold back. This guy is a cannon blasting everything in sight. That's John the Baptist. And he is saying, hey, sin is sin and hell is hot. And, and we are going to sit down and call this the way that it is. And we are not playing games here. Truth is truth. And so Herod hears about it, and they turn around and uh, says, uh, and throws him in jail. He says, uh, being rebuked by him, says verse 19 again, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So you can't pass this gal around from brother to brother and call it, you know, royalty or something. For all, for all the evils which Herod had done. Also, added above this all, that he shut John up in prison. So John's going to be arrested, thrown into prison, and we can debate this point later in the book where we're going to see that John's going to be beheaded and killed by this. And, you know, there's, there's an argument on what this guy John was doing, if it was even profitable, if it was a waste of time. But for right now, you're seeing just the heart of this, that this guy is out there speaking with a, a purpose. He is understanding, above all things, his position before the Lord. He knows that God is righteous and he is a slimy human being. And when you have that perspective of a proper position of you and God, when you don't fear God, when, when you think that you and God have got you know, an equal footing, you have a tendency to allow bitterness and a lot of deception to creep into your life. Yeah, I can hardly wait till I die. I'm going to see that God, and I've got a few things to tell him. You're going to go up and rebuke the Lord? You're, you? Gonna, yeah, I, I, I don't like the way this world's run. I don't like the way my mother died. I don't like the way this happened. I don't like that. I don't like this. And we have the audacity to think that we're just going to go in there and just have it out with God. And you know, John, John's, no, 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 no. The Messiah's coming. I'm not even fit to untie his sandal. Uh, but he's the nice guy from the God thing. And God, the beginning of all wisdom is to fear the Lord and to see that God is powerful and strong. I'm convinced that when we do stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That's every single person in this room will stand in front of God, whether you like it or not, whether you believe in it or not. Whether your God you think is a big tomato plant or you think the true God of Jehovah is it, you're going to stand in front of the true God of Israel whether you like it or not. And when you see God in His glory, 
God, high and lifted up, the power, the might of the throne, you ain't got to turn around and say, ah, oh, well, there he is. Now, the only thing you do is you fall flat on your face and say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, just like Isaiah the prophet, a righteous man. He didn't sit down and say, hey, God. John the Baptist, when John the Baptist, who was Jesus' best friend and buddy here on the planet, when he sees Jesus up in heaven, he falls on his face and he says, woe is me. He's flat out. And, and, and we have to sit down and say, if John the Apostle could turn around and see Jesus in his glorified state, how powerful is that? And when we start to get a glimpse of the power of God, we can see the speck of dust that we are before him and that we would have no right to ever challenge him on anything. And if we come into a clearer picture of understanding the power of God, we will start to sit down and change our heart. Our heart starts to be changed. And if our heart is changed in the right condition, the situations we will in, we will start to speak out about Christ in any given situation. A true heart that understands the power of God in its fullness will never live in fear of man. Will never sit down there and run from the things that he is afraid of. He will say, I see God and I will do what God is commanding and telling me to do. That's, that's a true heart that's converted. That's John the Baptist. And he's saying, I don't believe it is separate. I don't, there's a problem and there it is. Throw me in jail, cut my head off, I don't care. I wish we had a little bit more of that in us. I wish we could sit down there and have that backbone, that strength, and to be able to declare boldly the truth of God. But what do we do? The glaze creeps, creeps over our face. The, the, the justification for our sins, the reasoning in our hearts, the reasoning in our hearts starts to take over and we start to think of that easy, greasy grace that we can slide around and do whatever we want to do and we can come up with our little concocted stories, our little concocted lives and we can live a life and everything will be okay. And somehow or another, all we can say is that attitude destroys Christians. It eliminates the power of God in your life. You can go to heaven, I, I, like I said, I'm not saying, I'm saying, but you are eliminating the effectiveness. You're making your road crooked, full of potholes, and you're making your life one long hill to climb. Are you tired? You've got to say, Lord, I'm, t I'm tired. I want to I give it up. Now notice, if you would, this is really powerful. It says, when all the people were baptized, so everyone's going out being dunked in verse 21, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. What? I thought he was a righteous dude. And while he prayed, the heavens was opened. So Jesus is going out to the lake. He's being baptized. He says, and the Holy Spirit, so a big scene, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came out from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. So you look at this and Jesus comes out to be baptized. And you know, this is a toughie for, for some of us that want to explain things in the Bible. You go, why was Jesus baptized? I thought he was the Son of God. I thought he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. I thought he was perfect and sinless and fully God. Why is he out being baptized? Baptism is a sign of confession and repentance of sins. Pastor, are you telling me that the, Jesus was a sinner? 
No, 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 no. Let's go the other direction. Let's say that Jesus walks up to the Jordan River. He sees John out there baptizing in the river. And Jesus goes out and says, hey, John, hola, John, how you doing, buddy? Whatever they say. He says, hey, nice to see you taking care of the scum of this world, but I'm better than that. And he keeps on marching. Now, if the Bible read that, Jesus came, gave approval to John, but he didn't do that because he was better than that. Well, let's say the Bible read that way. Every single Christian <laughs> would say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't need that baptism and repentance stuff. That's for losers. I'm a little bit better than that. And what would that be doing? That would be reinforcing the glaze of the greasy, easy grace. And, and, and it would only re reinforce to the boneheads that need to repent that, that, that they wouldn't have to. And so you can almost listen to this. You can almost see Jesus saying, well, I'm going to have a whole bunch of followers out there. And I'm going to show them that I need to do this. And if I do it, then certainly every single other person needs to do it. Because, hey, can you walk on water? I can't. Can you feed the multitudes? I can't. So if Jesus gets dunked, well, <laughs> I guess it's not below me to get dunked. And what happens is you see that Jesus goes out, he's dunked, and I like this. It's God who says, excuse me, Jesus is down there, but he ain't bad, that's the good one. So if everybody, if you and I were all to stand before God and say, God, am I good enough to get to heaven? God would look at every single one of us and say, nope, you're not. None of us are pleasing in God's sight because we're all sinners. And as a sinner, God says you're rejected from his kingdom because he requires perfection to enter his kingdom. Now, out of all of us, God eliminates the whole human race and says, none of you are good enough to meet my standard. Oh, except that guy Jesus down there. He's good enough. He's perfect. And so God is making the clarification. And I like that. Jesus says, I'll do this. And it's God who interrupts and says, this is not necessary. But I'm glad he's doing it because he's setting an example, which is critical for you and I who can be deceptive and glaze over our lives and thinks that, that so that we think that we don't need that. And Jesus is now, now, now back up a little bit. Can you, can you picture Jesus walking up to the scene of John being baptized with all the multitudes out there and he's up there screaming and yelling. And Jesus says, I got to go forward and get baptized. Now, if I was Jesus, thank God he doesn't think like I do, I would be saying, there's no way I'm going to get baptized because I'm going to try and lead all these people and have them think that I'm the Messiah. And if I'm out there being dunked by this lunatic, they're going to turn around and think that I am a sinner. The average man on the street. So just bear in mind, listen to this. What Jesus is doing, he is swallowing his pride like you would never imagine. Can you imagine Jesus saying, everyone's going to misinterpret what I'm doing. Everyone's going to screw this up. Everyone's going to think, I have to go forward. And what does Jesus say? I don't care what man thinks of me. I don't care. I'm going to do what my father tells me to do. And out of obedience, I'm going to be baptized. 
And I'm glad you interrupted God and said I didn't need it. Thank you. <laughs> but you can imagine how hard it is to swallow <sighs> dignity, pride, whatever you want to call it. I don't think Jesus had any pride, you know. And I, 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 he, he had to be completely humble. And I want to tell you that in the process of repentance for you and I, the thing that hurts us the most is that we will sit down and say, I don't need to confess my sins. I don't need to get baptized. I don't do that Jesus stuff like that. And what we say is, is, is inside of us that, listen to this, I've been there. If I do that, then I'm going to look like one of those loonies. And I don't want people to think I'm like that. If I come up and tell you that I struggle with my sins. If I come up and tell you that, hey, brother, I, I have a hard time. I am in the, in the valley of temptation and struggling, and, and I want to go sin like you would not imagine. You would say, oh, you're Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave has a temptation? Oh, I thought you were a holy man. <laughs> no, I'm not. And, and it is so hard for me, if this is Pastor Dave, it is so hard for me to admit that I'm wrong. And if it's hard for me, can you imagine how hard it would be for Jesus to go out there to get dunked? And yet, he was willing to do the right thing out of obedience. And God interjected and said he didn't need it. But... The hardest part of true confession is to turn around and to get over that fear, that welling up, that, that easy, greasy grace that we all want that, that puts a glaze over our eyes so that we can sit down and say, well, that ain't me. And it is astounding to watch person after person after person come in and through this church. And they will go through trials and tribulations and suffering and they will never come forward and ask for prayer. They will never deal with an issue. I get phone calls all day long, all week long. Pastor, pray for me. Pastor, pray for me. Pastor, pray for me. And you want to say, hello, there's a prayer meeting, 8 o'clock every Saturday night. If you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, that's where you want to be. Hello, Sunday after church, anybody needs prayer, come forward. You get the, you know, couple crusty people come up here and say, ah, pray for me again. Man, if you're going through the trial of the century, the best thing you can do is ask for prayer. The best thing you can do is turn around and confess yourself and say, Lord, I need prayer. And if you don't want that, God bless you. You can walk out the door, get a donut, and have fun. But you're making your life full of potholes. You're throwing curves in the road. You're not preparing the way for the Lord. You're nullifying the power of God when you could be walking in repentance. Now, notice, if you would, we now have to go through a long list of names here, finish off the chapter. And what we're going to do is go around the room and everybody picks a name and you have to speak it because I'm tired of butchering these names. <laughs> but we're going to skip them all. But for anybody that has any desire, it's very interesting. He says, verse 23, he says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about uh, 30 years of age, being as was supposed... Uh, the son of Joseph. So here we're looking at a lineage and it's going to go all the way back to the end of this, the verse 38, and you're going to see that it, they're following the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. So you're going to see that Jesus, and I think that's pretty cool that you could do that, and for anybody that has any idea of what any of these names mean, it won't mean anything to you until you really get down to verse 27. 
It says the son of Joannes, uh, the son of Rasha, the son of Zerubbabel. So Joseph would be a son of Zerubbabel, which uh, was the governor after they rebuilt uh, the nation after um, the Babylonian Empire, which is interesting. And, uh, and then it turns around and it goes uh, until you come down to verse 31. And it says, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So normally you would think that the lineage would be coming through Solomon, the son of David. David we knew was promised to be king. And from David all the way back to Adam seems to be a simple process. David said one of his sons would be. But notice that the lineage of Joseph, and this is, there's another lineage in Matthew which gives the lineage through Mary. And that uh, takes the standard route down to the line of a king. Uh, but this is going to be Joseph, who really wasn't Jesus's father. And that's why he was as supposed, because Jesus was born of a virgin. So who really cares where the father came from, because he just raised him as a dad, even though he wasn't physically his dad as his seed and his son. But it still gives you a track to say, this is the promised Messiah as he's coming from. It's coming through a different one, and it tracks it all the way back, like I said, back to Adam. And all we can do with that is just take a, a brief thought and say, isn't it amazing, isn't it amazing how God sees every single thing in your life? Have you ever tried to do your family tree? And how far it goes back and what happens and blah, 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 blah. And I think we can go back six or seven generations or something back to the, you know, 1802 Dave Brown came over from England and set up a store in the Hudson River Valley of up New York, and he was slaughtered by the Indians and had a son, John Brown, and then it was John Brown, Dave Brown, John Brown. It's kind of fascinating, you know, you see all the things that was happening there. But this is interesting because Jesus is saying, I can trace my heritage back how many generations? And it's amazing. God says, I see every single thing that's been happening to bring you to where you're at. And I like that. Jesus sees every single thing in your life. Jesus sees all the things that are going on, and he knows what's been happening for generations to lead you up to this point. He knows exactly what's going on with you. And I find it amazing that Jesus is saying, God is saying, he's saying, I see all the pain that you're in. I see all your circumstances. We, in our greasy, you know, easy grace that's glazed over our eyes, we can sit down there and say, well, God doesn't see. God doesn't care. Nobody cares. It's way out there. And the truth of the matter is, is that God loves you so much. He cares and he sees all the pain. And you're sitting down in your seat and you're going, oh, God doesn't understand the situation I'm in. Oh, I have to lie. I have to cheat. I have to cover my tracks. That's the way everybody does it in my job. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have a job. And God doesn't want me to be homeless. God doesn't want me to be without my paycheck. God wants me to do this. And we can rationalize, we can think, and we can put everything together on why we have to lie, cheat, and steal. And the truth of the matter is, is none of that is important. God sees it all. And what God is saying, if you want the power, the power of the Holy Spirit confess, confess your sin. And even as, as hard as it was for Jesus, and I recognize it's hard for any one of us to turn around and to say, I was wrong. I've been wrong my whole life. I'm struggling with sin. And embarrassing and humiliating and how people could misunderstand what you're saying. Hey, there's no, there's no crime in, in, in struggling with a sin. Every single one of us gets attacked. Next week, we're going to see Jesus gets attacked. There's no crime in being attacked. The crime is internalizing it. The crime is not dealing with it appropriately. And the crime is to say, Jesus wants to offer you the power of the Holy Spirit in your life here today. You can have power in your life. And it's going to be thwarted 
thwarted, thrown off to the side if you want to just glaze over the whole truth that's in front of you. True Christianity is going to turn around and to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I am tired of my life. Lord, I have been living in sin, in denial. Will you please come into my life, forgive me of my sins, and then I can start to walk in the fullness and the power of what Christ has. That's a believer. That's what God wants you to be doing. That's the process of a Christian. Now, hopefully this May we'll go out to the lake and we can go get baptized. I believe in it. I think it's awesome. And it's a great time to tell the congregation to make a public profession of yourself as a believer. It's cold outside. <laughs> you can come up here, grab someone to pray with them and say, Lord, change me. Lord, it's hard. And I care about you as a pastor. I know a lot of pain is in this church, and I think it breaks my heart sometimes to be at a prayer meeting with just Cornelius and I and someone else and say, hey, where's the church praying? Where's the tears of repentance? So many people, they come to us and say, Lord, I'm losing my house. I'm praying for my house. And people will come forward and say, hey, I'm praying. Pray for me. I need my house. Lord, my dog is sick. Lord, this is what's going on. And you know what happens is when you turn your heart away from God, God is systematically being removed from you because you're pulling yourself away from God. And in the process of, 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 of being separated from God, a life without God is a life that can be filled with potholes of destructions of homes and lives and misery. And what you need to say is that when you come forward and you can sit down and say, Oh, Lord, I want you to, uh, you know, can you pray for me? Pray for my house. Pray for my dog. No, we don't pray for houses. We don't pray for dogs. What we pray for is when someone says, my heart needs to be right with God. And when you make your heart right with God, the dog and the house and the cat and the life and everything else follows. The power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed into the areas that need to be done. So come forward. Ask for prayer. Change your life. This is, you know, I'm just telling you this is where we're at in Luke chapter 3, but it's a critical step in your life to be whole and to be made right. And you can so go at home and say, Lord, I cried for three hours in front of you in my bedroom and cried underneath my pillow. Oh, that's good. But there's power in confession. Setting yourself free. Changing your life. And for all that it's worth, being born again is to say, Lord, I want to be saved today. I want that life that you're talking about. Let those words leave your lips. Amen?